The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. There is a profound need today for people to understand how the religious traditions relate to one another, what they have in common, and how their remarkable differences are dwarfed by their even more remarkable common ground. The transformative path of divine love is the greatness of each of these traditions, and it is their entire purpose in the first place to transform the human being into a living instrument of divine love and will. There's no doubt the level of negativity, divisiveness, and separation that we seemingly feel that is on this planet. Much of what we experience today, whether it is in politics or other areas of our world, oftentimes could have resulted from the divisiveness of religions many, many, many years ago. And that is still tending to be a conversation in today's climate. So what do we do to bring these religions together? And what perspective do we have to take to truly understand that they all might be saying the same thing? The book that we are discussing today is Belonging to God, and it is a vast exploration of divine love in Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, as seen through the scriptures and the writings of leading mystics from these traditions, that presents a glorious universal path of love that is illuminated equally by modern science and ancient wisdom. My guest today is Dr. William Keithen. He is a leader in the interfaith spiritual movement, is a mathematical physicist and environmental scientist and he's been a practitioner on the contemplative path of divine love for over 35 years. He co-founded the Satyana Institute and Gender Reconciliation International with his wife, Reverend Cynthia Bricks. The Satyana Institute is a nonprofit service and training organization based near Seattle, Washington. I want to read a short passage that was deeply profound to me from this beautiful book, Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and the Universal Path of Divine Love. We need God. God needs us. We humans need God. And Rumi counsels us to increase our need because God responds to a genuine need. Yet our need for God is only half the circle of divine love. God also needs us to complete the circle. There is a kind of hole in God's divine fractal tapestry if we don't fulfill our spiritual purpose. If I betray my divine destiny, that hole in me is fractally practically replicated on a larger scale and becomes kind of a gap in God, even despite God's inherent completeness. There is no being who can fulfill my divine destiny except me, and if I don't do it, it is a loss not only for my life, but for some larger cosmic purpose and destiny as well. We need God to be fully human. God needs humanity to be fully God. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. William Keepen to 1111 Talk Radio. 
Welcome, William. That is probably the passage in your book that just had me contemplate and contemplate and contemplate. And I'd like to start right there. We need God to be fully human. God needs humanity to be fully God. How do you receive those words that were written? Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be on your show. And thank you for starting there because you're starting right into the sacred mystery that is really expressed across the religions. And um, if you look, for example, um, at the very end of the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna basically says, Krishna is God and Arjuna is the human disciple, and Krishna says, I want to share my deepest secret with you. And then he basically says, because you are my beloved, I share this deepest secret with you. And then the deepest secret is to make me your beloved. So God says to the human soul, make me your beloved, and then we will become one in this profound way. And so it's very deeply true that God needs us in order to be fully God. That's why we were created. And so it's a, it's a very profound love affair um, that we have uh, lost often in our understanding uh, today. And so uh, thank you for bringing out that passage in the book. It's one of my favorites as well. Now, as you go into the book Belonging to God, you have focused upon the divine love in the Gita, the Quran, and the Gospel. And you are presenting them in a way to show that these are really three different paths that may look unique and completely separate, but in actuality, they are saying very much the same thing and converge at one point, which is the mystery of the soul and that unique love, that, that, that divine path of love that we are each here to walk if we are willing to step into that awareness. Talk about what presented you to choose these three specific ones, and as you wrote this book and have done your own exploration in 35 years, what you find the most profound connection between the three. Well, I chose these three uh, really for two reasons. One uh, was because I wanted to highlight the theistic traditions because the path of divine love is sometimes regarded uh, in kind of contemporary spirituality as somehow less profound um, as the what's called the non-dual path um, or the direct path of knowledge. And I wanted to correct this erroneous view. The second point I wanted to uh, correct is that the, the path of divine love is itself a path of non-dual realization in the sense that when one merges into union with God, uh, duality is dissolved in that union. So that was one reason I chose them. Um, and the other is because of the profound intimacy uh, that I just spoke of in the Supreme Secret of the Gita, and the fact that uh, there is this ecstatic, uh, intimate union that happens in the depths of the heart that is so clearly articulated in the theistic traditions. And so I wanted to really highlight that. So as we begin, uh, as you begin the book, you, you have a beautiful uh, poem by Rumi that states, I am neither Christian nor Jew, nor Zoroastrian nor Muslim. I am not of the East nor of the West, nor of the land nor of the sea. My place is the placeless. My trace is the traceless. Tis neither body nor soul, for I belong to the soul of the beloved. I have put duality away. 
I have seen that the two worlds are one. I know none other except God. And you speak of, of many individuals throughout the book and how some felt belonging to religion and others did not belong to a religion, but that belonging to God is kind of the middle point regardless of the other two paths. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, so basically God is this supreme ultimate mystery, which is also can be viewed as a kind of supreme being, if you will. And ultimately, we all have our being inside of the being of God. And in that sense, we actually belong to God. We always did. We never didn't belong to God. We're just unaware of it. And um, that beautiful poem that you wrote by Rumi, I also brought uh, one, a quote from Gandhi, where he says, I am a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, and a Jew, and so are all of you. Mm. And so in saying that, both Rumi, and so Rumi saying, I belong to none of the religions, Gandhi saying, I belong to them all, how can that be? Well, basically what they're pointing to is that, that the religions are vehicles that lead to this supreme mystery of union with God. And when that happens, the religion itself is transcended because one moves into the depths of God, and the God that one discovers is one God across the different religions. And although each religion has its own theology and they have different names for God, um, you know, the conflict between them around fighting over different gods is really as ridiculous as, for example, saying that the elixir of life is water, and then someone from Germany says, nein, it's Wasser, and then someone from Spain says, no, it's aqua. And then they're fighting over whether it's Vassar, Aqua, or Water. They're fighting over a mere name when it's the substance itself that is the whole point. And this same principle is at the root of much of the theological conflict. Yes, you write in the book that we are to abandon all dharmas, that this is one of the most astonishing and profound lines in the Bhagavad Gita. It's also one of the most controversial as it directly addresses the long-standing tension between religious tradition and spiritual freedom. There, there, there is this connection or grasp that religious tradition has on us, whether we are Christian, Muslim, Hindu, or any other. And yet there is this deep questioning that takes place inside of every individual, which I think is that seed of spiritual freedom that is continuously on a quest. Is, is leading our religious tradition part of how we attain that spiritual freedom as we move into the path of divine love? Or is allowing ourselves to be tethered to the religious tradition part of the path to spiritual freedom? Well, that's a beautiful question. Thank you for such a, a thoughtful and really deep question. You know, the religious traditions were given to humanity as vehicles to realize God. That is their purpose. As Thomas Keating, one of my mentors, uh, who wrote the foreword to the book, he says, the entire purpose of Christianity is transformation into Christ, nothing else. And we could say the same about Buddhism. The entire purpose of Buddhism is transformation into Buddha. The entire purpose of Vaishnavite Hinduism is transformation into Christ. I mean, Krishna. So the traditions... The religious traditions were given to the human soul to provide a vehicle to guide them into that transformation that leads to union with God. When the religions do that, they succeed. When they do not do that, they are actually betraying the person 
and unfortunately, many of the religious institutions have profoundly betrayed us on that true path. Jesus, for example, railed against the Pharisees when he said, you do not go into the kingdom yourselves, and you do not let others enter. So the, the Pharisees were standing as the false priests of the true religion. We see this in every religion, not just in you know, ancient uh, Judaism. Uh, all the religions have these false priests. And so in that sense, we sometimes need to stand outside the religion, or we need to go into the interiority of it. But my, my conviction and part of the reason I wrote this book was because there's so much critique, uh, so much anti-religious critique now, it's become almost fashionable to be sort of against religions. And of course, the dumbest and dimmest elements of the religions are highlighted and then used as a, as a pretext to dismiss them. And so with what I'm feeling strongly is that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So instead, I chose to focus on the best and the brightest aspects of the religions and to really articulate the supreme path of the heart, which is universal in all of them and which is their highest purpose in the first place. You said that so well, and it really does seem that we are divided in those two directions. There's either this this direction towards spirituality that wants to abandon religion altogether or because we are such a mental society, we take religion and we turn it into repetition or ritual or a, a constancy of, of going deeper into making meaning of a scripture that is even sometimes beyond what we can make meaning of. In the book, you talk about the Gita is not to be understood and digested as information, but rather to be absorbed, practiced, and experienced as a living transformation at the core of one's being. Is this true for all religions and religious texts, that we need to move beyond the understanding and the digestion of information and really be in the absorption and, and praxis and experience of living transformation? In, in my humble opinion, yes. Um, Jesus said it when he said the heart, the law to be written in your heart is not carved in stone. And as you just mentioned, the Gita, the Gita itself says that scriptures for one who is, you know, awake, spiritually enlightened, are as useless as a pond when the entire landscape is flooded. Beautiful teaching there, basically saying that for one who has opened to the truth, one's heart is flooded with the waters of spiritual realization and love. And then you don't need the scripture in the same way. It doesn't mean that you completely reject it, but the scriptures are really a stepping stone to the realization of that to which they point. The scriptures themselves cannot be the ultimate teaching because they are written words in a book. Now, having said that, I want to speak to Islam because Islam holds the place of its Quran in a somewhat different place than, than other scriptures. But even there, as one recites the Quran, which is understood as the very speech of God, the whole point is that one has to become transformed by that speech. It's not enough to just hear it and then to mouth it and be able to repeat it and even quote the, the scriptures at length. One has to become the very living truth to which they point. William Keaton speaks on the fire of divine love, and he says there is a secret fire of divine love that burns at every level of manifestation, in the heart, in the depths of God, and in and as the inner essence of all beings. 
The heart is the inner gateway to God. In physics, nothing can alter the speed of light. In spirituality, nothing can alter the function of divine light. Just as physical light is frozen to become matter, divine light is refracted into a spectrum of different religions, each one a magnificent ray of the universal divine light. William Keithen is the uh, mathematical physicist, environmental scientist, interfaith spiritual movement leader, and the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and the Universal Path of Divine Love. He is also the director of Satyana Institute with his wife, Reverend Cynthia Bricks, which is a nonprofit service and training organization. The Institute's programs have been conducted in venues across the United States, India, South Africa, Australia, Kenya, and many other countries. William's books include Divine Duality, and Women Healing Women, co-authored with his wife, Cynthia Bricks, in addition to Song of the Earth. Together, he and Reverend Bricks conduct trainings, retreats, and workshops nationally and internationally, encouraging individuals, communities, and organizations to combine the inner work of the heart with the outer service in the world. You can find out more at their two websites, pathofdivinelove.org or Satyana. Dot org s a t y a n a dot org. We'll be right back with Dr. William Keaton, the Voice America Seventh Wave Channel. Have you seen eleven eleven? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? Eleven, one eleven, twenty two, thirty three, four hundred forty four. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. Engage with experts and topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at IamSimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. My guest today is Dr. William Keepin, and he is the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. You can find out more about him at pathofdivinelove.org or at satyana.org, S-A-T-Y-A-N-A.org. Combining decades of Eastern and Western contemplative practice with scientific research, William Keithen offers a way forward for anyone who yearns for an inclusive spirituality that can encompass both deep intellectual inquiry and devotional abandon of the heart, in-depth yet accessible grounded yet uplifting, this journey across faith traditions illuminates commonalities in the scriptures, writings of key mystics, 
and core practices of Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, drawing on the wisdom of other traditions as well. It will inspire seekers of all faiths interested in the path of love that bridges world religions, as well as believers who are eager to learn how their particular faith intersects with other religions at the deepest level. I'd like to share another passage with you from William's book, and it is about moving beyond desires. Detaching from desire is an essential first step toward building the strength required for the act of full surrender. As we decouple from personal desire, our actions that were previously rooted largely in self-centered pursuits shift towards service and benefits of others. Although sacrifice often carries a negative connotation in our contemporary society, all life flows and functions by virtue of this principle. The etymology of the word sacrifice is to make sacred. I'd like to welcome you back, William. And this was another section that was truly profound because later in the book you talk a little more about detachment and how detachment is not just something that we do on the outside, but there's a level of detachment that also has to be equated on the inside to truly be in a place of moving into a deeper essence of the divine love of God. Talk a little bit about why there has to be an equality between the detachment from the outside and a detachment from the inside. Well, it, it's, a, it's a subtle thing, but if we simply refrain from sort of pursuing our desires outside, but then we constantly hanker after them from within, then we're, not, we're still not really free, and we're still driven by our desires. And so the whole understanding of transcending desire does not mean that we don't participate in the world. It means that we relinquish the sort of uh, needs and demands of our mind and our senses, and we come into harmony with a larger, in the, in the theistic traditions, what would be called the will of God that is a current or stream that we can connect to that moves through us. And when we finally unite with that, then we have this experience um, in the Christian tradition, as St. Paul said, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And this is really the process to which we are reaching for. In the Islamic tradition, they would put it differently. Uh, there's a beautiful hadith, you know, this uh, sayings of, of the prophet where God is speaking. And, and one of them is so beautiful where, it's, where, where God says, My servant never ceases to draw nigh unto me with acts of devotion. And when I love her, I become the eyes by which she sees, the mouth by which she speaks, the feet by which she walks. So the divine itself takes up residence in the human being, and then one's desire becomes one with the will and desire of God. And that's the whole reason that we have this transformation of desire. So we... We do know that everything that is in the outside world that is lack or dis-ease or of dysfunction is our separateness from God. It is our longing of God, even though the things that we, we clamor for, we wouldn't call God. They don't look like God. They don't feel like God. But in essence, that is the spiritual undercore and dis-ease that takes place. As we move towards this longing that pulls at us, that tugs at us, that we sometimes are aware of or not aware of, how do we play, how do we stay in a place of detachment to the longing for God that exists as well? Because it seems like that would be a very subtle piece as we move into the path of divine will. 
Yes, it's very important. And one way that we do that is this absolute vital uh, prayer practices and contemplative practices that we engage in on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, silent meditation of different forms or centering prayer um, is really crucial, as well as certain um, repeated prayers that really express our intention to God. Now, in, in certain traditions, like the Islamic traditions, they have a formalized practice for that, you know, with the five uh, prayers that they do on the Salat every day. In other traditions, um, we have to kind of... Uh, craft that for ourselves. In some of the Eastern traditions, they have, there are these meditative practices that are very well uh, designed and articulated, um, you know, meditation and yoga practices. Um, in the Western, uh, like Christianity, we, we have to find the, the right practices that really work for us. Um, my mentor, Father Thomas Keating, has developed a practice of centering prayer that really works very similarly to meditation. Um, others, like Father Lawrence Freeman and John Main, developed a form of Christian meditation. But we need a contemplative practice that helps us go beyond the mental machinations that fill our mind and constantly lead us in in sort of a distracted life of constant stream of thought and that drop us deeper into the space of the heart and into the love in the heart. It's not that we reject thoughts, but we need to root ourself, our life, and our very being in the depths of our heart. You write in the book that the Gita says to fill your mind with me, give yourself in love to me, sacrifice to me, prostrate yourself before me, having thus united your whole self to me, with me, as your supreme goal, you shall come to me. You also write that the Torah states, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Why is love such a profound force on the spiritual path? Love is the source of all manifest creation. Love is the cause. Basically, um, all that we see, as the great uh, Sufi mystic Shabastari said, all that you see has appeared because of love. And so this is, love is the power that created us. And love is the force, then, that binds us back to the source of our creation. We see this so clearly reflected in the love of a mother to a child. And in a certain sense, God is like a higher octave of that same kind of love in relation to the human soul. So each one of us is born in love and created and is a creation of love. And if we can connect that to that love in the depths of our heart and redirect it back to the source, then we complete this profound circle of love. Uh, that God loves us, but we, it's not complete unless we love God back. Think about it. If, if, if you have an unrequited love, there's, there's kind of only a one-way flow there. And somehow the great joy of love is when it, it comes back and is requited fully. And so God is really asking us to take that love that we have in our hearts and direct it back to God so that we connect with the source. This is the fundamental secret, as you beautifully spoke. It's, the, the, it's in the Torah, which then Jesus says is the first commandment. It is the final secret of the Bhagavad Gita. It is the whole essence of the Islamic path, particularly in the Sufi tradition, where it says in the Quran, God loves 
them and they love him. And that is the secret. It sounds so simple, but that is the profound secret that reunites us with the supreme divine uh, being. As I was reading through the book, you, you have several sections that talk a little bit about grieving. And I know in The Course in Miracles, one of the lessons, and many of the lessons, focus upon our, how our grievances hide the light of the world within us. There is a, a writing in here where Krishna tells Arjuna, Here again, my supreme word, the most secret of all, Thou art dearly loved by me, therefore shall I disclose this secret for thy good. Fix thy mind upon me, devote thyself to me, make every action a sacrifice to me, hold thyself as nothing before me. You shall come to me truly, I promise, for you are dear to me. Abandon all dharmas, take refuge in me alone. I shall liberate you from all sins, do not grieve. Talk a little bit about the word grieve and the act of grieving and how this keeps us from this place of devotion and true connection. Well, the words you just read are what Krishna describes as the ultimate secret of the path of love and really the whole spiritual path. And the grief that he's speaking of is the grief of the despair of the human being when we are experiencing ourselves in the separate condition as just this little self, this I, me, and mine. And we see that we are flawed, and we see that we make mistakes. Mistakes are called, you know, sin, perhaps, in in the Christian and maybe the Western traditions. But in all traditions, we see that we are flawed and failed, failing human beings, and we strive to be good in some sense. But it's it's a very inadequate condition of human existence when we live in a sense a state of separation from God. And the message then that is given that you so beautifully um, quoted is where God basically says, "Give yourself to me. Basically, lay yourself at my feet, not in a sort of I'm bigger than you, I'm greater than you, but basically." By offering yourself to me, I will fill you with that which you most seek. As Rumi says, that which you seek is seeking you. God is seeking us. God needs us, as, as we said at the beginning of the interview. And when, that, when you actually allow yourself to be given over to God, <clears throat> then what happens is you are filled with that divine being. That divine being actually becomes you. And there's no separation and there's nothing to despair about and all your grief is dissolved it crumbles because you are suddenly one with the very source of life i i focus on that line make every action a sacrifice to me hold thyself as nothing before me and we we have our projections about the word sacrifice We've come up believing that sacrifice means that we are giving away something, that we're having to give up something, that we are losing something. But in the sense of the spiritual traditions and, and the sacred texts, is sacrifice really more about letting go and releasing the identities and the personalities that we have so that we may embrace the larger beingness of God that exists within us and truly come to God, truly fall into the arms and heart of God and become the mind and heart of God on the earth. Yes, that's very well spoken. And as you correctly said, you know, we have a certain negative association with the word sacrifice. But if you even look at the etymology of the word, it means from the Latin to make sacred. 
Mm. That's the origin of the word. And when we participate in this mystic sacrifice in the proper spirit, it is a privilege because what's happening is we are relinquishing our human ways and ideas and then allowing the divine way to kind of inhabit us. And so that process of what we call sacrifice is actually giving to life itself. And we give ourselves to life. And then what happens is we are rewarded a hundredfold from what we give. This is spoken across the traditions that each step towards God, you know, God rushes toward us a hundred times stronger. And so this idea of sacrifice is really a misnomer in our usual uh, conceptualization of it. So, and even the idea of bowing down before me, it's not so that God is, is somehow, you know, the big daddy and that we sort of stoop in some humiliating way. It is recognizing that the very being that is the source of the creation of the world, the creation of life, the creation of the cosmos and stars and all of it is relating directly to us. It's so grand, it's so majestic that when we glimpse this, we can do nothing other than bow. Everything in it bows because it's like, oh my gosh, this is where I come from. This is the source of it all and this is my true source and destiny. And so the bowing is one of a joyful bow, not a humbling or humiliating kind of defeat. And so when people use the word, the term namaste, that bowing that to the sacredness of the being of God within another is really even the bowing of the sacredness to the being of God at the self. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that is the essence of it. And, you know, there's a beautiful line from uh, the, the great uh, Christian mystic, uh, John of the Cross, who he says that this journey cannot be understood. It is so profound, so mysterious, it cannot be understood by the mind. And he actually says we advance by not understanding. But then he says, given that, he says there, it can be summarized in one statement. And then he gives this statement. He says, the soul becomes God from God by participation in God and in God's divine attributes. And that summarizes the whole essence of it, is that the human soul is transformed by God into God. This is very profound, and Mm. this is the great promise, and the, the pathway for that is the power of love in the heart. And so you asked, why is love so important? Because love is the power that can burn through all those veils of separation and burn them to a crisp, and they fall away, and then that, that flame of love that is in your heart becomes one with the fire of love in the divine heart of God itself. And so it's two flames become one fire. Oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Within the book, you bring up a point that is often a point of contention or a question for many people, and that is if these individuals are of other faiths, are they praying to a different God than I am? And you write, there is one transcendent absolute. The summit of the spiritual journey is the same for all three mystics. The three mystics assert that the absolute is one. And you pose a question absolute that is ontologically identical for all three mystics, or are they referring to different absolutes within their three t- traditions? So, William, is there one summit, or are there three? 
as, as I point out in that chapter, if we read the deepest mystics across the traditions, we see that although they sometimes will use different theological frameworks, what they describe as the experience of realizing God and the process that they go through and the transcendence of their separate identity and then merging into the infinite truth, infinite wisdom, and infinite, uh, indescribable bliss of that realization, we see that they describe essentially the same experience across the traditions. And so, yes, my, my answer is to that is that based both on the testimony of the mystics as well as a deep reading of the scriptures, when you realize, when you can get beyond just the labels and look at the depths of what they're just speaking of, you see that they're really all pointing to this same supreme mystery. They use different languages and theological systems, but the mystery to which all of these traditions are pointing is the one supreme reality of God. And can this summit of the mystical journey, how, how can you... Uh, characterize this, and is it something that can be realized but not experienced? Yes, this gets into the very subtle dimensions of the absolute, and first of all, it's beyond description, although, uh, of course, then the human beings who've had been there, in a sense, then give a, a kind of description of it as best they're able, uh, while they always point that the descriptions are inadequate. And there are three qualities that um, the mystics that I explored in depth use to describe this, and one is the quality of supreme truth, the actual living truth that is fully experienced. The second one is the the conscious realization of that truth. You know, it's one thing to know there's a truth. It's another thing to become that truth itself and know it in the depths of one being, one's being. As, as the great uh, mystic Roisbrick said, we behold uh, the supreme truth and we are what we behold. So we behold what we are and we are what we behold. So there is that living oneness with that supreme truth. And then the third quality that comes as a result of that realization is that one is absolutely drenched in supreme ecstatic bliss because it's so profound. This experience is described similarly across the mystics. Now, the other question you raise is very important because to have an experience one needs to have an experiencer and then you have the object of your experience and you have an experiencer who experiences the content of the experience. And in this highest realization, that distinction is dissolved. The experiencer and the experience, that separation is utterly dissolved. And so to speak most accurately about it, there is no I to experience this highest realization. The I itself that sense of I am here as a person, I, is actually dissolved. And the person then has no more separate subjective experience. And so when the mystics come back from this transcendent realization, they speak about the fact that their contingent self, that sense of being a human I, is actually dissolved in the process and that it's so radical and so extreme uh, that they, they can't really describe it. But they speak about that, and then afterwards, when they come back, in a sense, from that summit 
of full realization. They are fully transformed and they are fully divinized. Their devotion is intensified. And at the same, and at that point, they may return uh, periodically to this supreme realization where the eye is effaced. Um, and, but in order to be human, they, they sort of come back and forth, if you will, and move back and forth across that boundary. William Keaton writes in Belonging to God that the ultimate goal of spirituality is not self-mastery or even compassion in serving others, although these are integral to it. The true purpose of spirituality is self-transcendent. We are called to relinquish our separate self and identity together and become not just an instrument of divine love and will, but ultimately to be the essence of God. Weaving together incisive religious inquiry and ancient wisdom with modern scientific breakthroughs, William Keaton offers a way forward for anyone who yearns for an inclusive spirituality that can encompass both deep intellectual insight and devotional abandon of the heart to discover how their particular faith intersects with other religions at the deepest level. You can find out more about William and all of his work at satyana.org, or you can go to pathofdivinelove.org. We'll be right back with William Keepin. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. 1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly online publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. Engage with experts in topics of consciousness. Become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, expanding the heart, and experiencing greater aliveness. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at imsimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. In Belonging to God, William Keithen states that the doorway to this universal consciousness is through the heart, which opens inwardly to the implicate order that inks us all together. This vast inner oneness could be called the internet of the heart. He also states through the scriptures that love is a fire. Whoever stands near me stands near the fire, declares Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. The Quran concurs, blessed is the person near this fire and those around it. Similarly, in Hinduism, the journey to the Atman begins and ends in the fire. Divine love is a blazing fire and it burns alike in east or west. God is a consuming fire, and the yearning for God, truth, or love is itself the same fire burning in the heart. The mystical journey is a process that transforms the human disciple into this living fire of love. One who knows the fire knows all that is, the secret of all being. All the worlds are but the declension of fire. Beyond it, there is nothing. 
That is such a powerful passage, William. And when I look at my own life and look at the lives of other people, it's it's not just a reality, it's a metaphor, it's, it's everything in between because we have to walk the fire to truly allow everything to be burned away that is not the ultimate realization of the God-beingness that we each are and the sacredness and preciousness that we each are upon this planet and upon uh, everything and nothing, um, that, that last word, nothing, that is truly when we discover what is resulting from the fire. It is that awareness that there is nothingness in everything at, at, at the same time. Yes? Absolutely. That is beautifully spoken. And, you know, the fire basically burns everything away that is not love and leaves only itself. And this is the profound blessing of it. And like all fires, of course, it gives light and it gives warmth. And so one who gives themselves to this fire eventually then becomes themselves a source of that light and that warmth in the world. And that is the whole purpose of it. And when one has gone through this transformation, then wherever you place that person, they ignite that fire around them. Because people are inspired, people are drawn. You can't avoid the beautiful light and warmth of someone in whom that fire of divine love burns. And that's why Rumi says so beautifully, he says, set your life on fire and seek those who fan its flames. And and the reason is that the fire is so essential. You know, without that fire in the heart and igniting it and fanning the flames, all the reading of the scriptures and all the prayers won't actually work. The whole transformative process works by the igniting of that fire in the heart of the devotee. And that fire then burns and deepens, as you said, that longing. That fire is the longing. And that longing leads you back to God. It basically burns through all the obstacles. And if it's not strong in you, you can actually pray for that fire to be stronger. You can pray for that aspiration, for that fire of love in your heart, if you don't feel it, or if you don't feel it strongly enough, simply hold the prayer for God to strengthen it. And you will find over time, if that prayer is sincere, that that sincerity itself will fan those flames and that fire will become stronger and brighter and warmer in your own heart. And as it does, it will begin to burn through the obstacles in your own life that keep you separate from, from God. You write that the fire of divine love burns on every level of existence, from the heart of the sun to the human heart, to each tiny cell in the human body, to the subatomic particles and the core of every star across the galaxies. It is a grand fractal fire of love. Although physics distinguishes between chemical fire and nuclear fire, the fundamental forces of fire, the strong and weak nuclear interactions, and the electromagnetic interaction are believed to be a single unified force. There's a line in here where you say, to unite with the fire of love, one must become this fire. And then you go on to say um, that the same thing is echoed um, in the cloud of knowing by the 14th century anonymous Christian mystic. By love, God can be gotten and holden. By thought, never. When we talk about the fire and becoming the fire, oftentimes that even means being the fire in our own life. 
And, and is it through that? Is it through lighting ourselves up and empowering ourselves? Is that the divine will that is coming forward that's allowing us to enact in a way that is beyond what our human mind or our small mind can even believe possible so that the divine mind can take over and fully engulf us in its flames? Yes, it is. Um, and it is that, but it, it's very subtle because uh, empowering oneself can also sometimes be sort of magnifying the kind of aspirations of the ego. So one has to be very mindful of what, we're, what this whole path is about. And it's really the, it's about connecting with that flame of longing in the heart, which is experienced every time we feel love in the heart, when you feel love towards a little baby, when you feel that kind of joyful radiance when you step out on a beautiful day and you see the mag- magnificent beauty of nature. Um, and so what I would say in order to connect with this fire is to, first of all, really attend to what you love and pour your love into that and also attend to what breaks your heart. Because what breaks your heart is a place where your heart is called to be part of the healing of the world. And in giving yourself to those areas of suffering where you yourself feel called, you then become uh, a healing balm and that fire then will pour through you into that healing. So it's a very important process to be true to the particular way that that fire burns in your heart and to then give yourself according to what is revealed to you from within. So often they say that our power is in our pain, and you talk about heartbreak and that opening up that happens from the heartbreak that becomes the source not only of love but becomes the healing bomb. Many individuals find themselves walking through that fire and ending up in places of heartbreak, but then feeling inspired to make great change or be of a cause, but it is not the inspired activism that comes from emotion or reactivity. It is one that is more of an inspired action. Is that the type that you're talking about? Yes, that is the type that I'm talking about. And sometimes activism will begin from a place of outrage uh, at, at some kind of injustice in the world. But it's very, very important that that anger not be the fuel for one's action in the world. It might be the initial prompting, but one needs to transform that anger and outrage into the fire of love. The actions may be the same. One may be still out there, um, for example, some of the people standing at Standing Rock right now, or any other form of you know, serving in the soup kitchen as a way of, you know, offering one's love into the world for those who are in need. But whatever it is, uh, the, the motivation has to be transformed from anger and outrage into this fire of divine love that simply places oneself in service where that service is needed. And then there becomes a clean burning flame that burns through your being and gives that light and radiance into the world. That's beautiful. The clear burning flame. You have a list of several principles of divine love 
at the end of the book, Belonging to God, would you like to touch on some of the ones that you you feel could be um, most profound in this moment, perhaps three or four of those? Sure. Um, well, the first one is to really point to the fact that there, all the mystical and spiritual traditions claim this oneness of the supreme reality. It goes by different names, you know, the Godhead or uh, Dharmakaya in Buddhism or, you know, Brahman, Nirguna, you know, Brahman without form. And it's infinite, uncompounded, unconditioned, and has no name ultimately, but goes by these different names. That is, first of all, one of the key principles is to recognize this oneness. And that then it manifests in different different principles of light, if you will, um, the Trinity in Christianity, the Trimurti in Hinduism of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, um, or Allah and the 99 names in the case of Islam, or the Sambhogakaya in the case of Buddhism, the kind of the Buddha consciousness. And then from that Logos plane, it then manifests into each of the different religions. And the religions are structured something like a set of Russian dolls. This is the whole understanding of fractals, where the biggest doll, you know how Russian dolls, you open it up and you find a smaller one inside, and you open it up yes. and you find a smaller one. So if you think of the biggest Russian doll as kind of God, and then you go down to the littlest one, embedded within it is a tiny little doll, but the doll, which is the human being, but that little tiny one looks exactly like the big one. And in a certain sense, each human being is literally a droplet of God and is made in that image of God. And in the realization of that, one of the principles is that those who know God dissolve their separate being and identity and basically merge into that union. As the great mystic Meister Eckhart puts it, this soul and that God become one is and act in the world as this isness. And so that is really the, the, the process of non-dual realization of God. And the whole key to it is to basically fan the flames of that secret fire that burns in the depths of the heart. And because it, that fire burns in and as the inner essence of all beings. And it is what unites the flame of love in your heart with the divine fire in the very heart of God. And so those two flames, as I said, become one fire, and this is the secret of the path. I love that metaphor, Will. That was absolutely wonderful, a great uh, imagery to put in front of us. So we come full circle. You want to see the end of something? Look at the beginning. We're going to go back to the passage that I read right when we opened this show. We need God. God needs us. We humans need God. And Ruby counsels us to increase our need, because God responds to genuine need. Yet our need for God is only half the circle of divine love. God also needs us to complete the circle. There is a kind of hole in God's divine fractal tapestry if we don't fulfill our spiritual purpose. If I betray my divine destiny, that hole in me is practically replicated on a larger scale and becomes a kind of gap in God, even despite God's inherent completeness. There is no being who can fulfill my divine destiny except me, and if I don't do it, it is a loss not only for my life, but for some larger cosmic purpose and destiny as well. We need God to be fully human. God needs humanity to be fully God. 
My guest has been Will Keepen, and he is the author of Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. I urge you to find out more about him and visit satyana.org and see all of the amazing work he and his wife, Reverend Cynthia Briggs, are doing. That is S-A-T-Y-A-N-A dot org. You can also go to their website, pathofdivinelove.org. Thank you, William, for being on 1111 Talk Radio. Until next week, in love, of love, with love, and as love, I am Simran. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simran next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.